I want to send greetings uh, from various uh, churches. Then we'll stand for the reading of God's Word from Hebrews chapter 1, followed by a prayer, and then we'll be seated and we'll get rolling. So, uh, First of all, on behalf of Grace Reformed Baptist Church and representation from Heritage Baptist Church in Owensboro, our love and greetings to you in the name of Christ Jesus here at Cornerstone, and also from the far uh, nether world of California from Richard Barcellos. Uh, he wanted to pass on his love and greetings uh, from their church as well this morning. So um, <clears throat> let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. This will come from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2a. And then I'll also read, which will hopefully be clear in a little while why I did this, uh, from chapter 2, 1 through 3a. So that is our uh, text for this morning. Let me read uh, from God's Word for those verses, and then we'll pray. Hear the word of the Lord. God, after He spoke long ago in the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. Now chapter 2, beginning verse 1. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's pray. Almighty God, we beg you for help, as has been prayed already. Once again, we have nothing but our sin to bring. Send your Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to enliven your people and to convict sinners of their great need for Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You all didn't know this, but I have a, a time machine, and I'm going to offer you a ride in it for a few moments. And I'm going to set the dial on the time machine for Memorial Day weekend. 1977. I'm going to watch Tim Mosby's face right now and see if he, how quickly he starts picking up on it. Memorial Day weekend, 1977. The buzz was on the streets, excitement in the air, and movie tickets everywhere were being sold. Kids with grubby little hands running down aisles of theaters, getting seated, popcorn in hand, cokes near their chairs, and the air was electric. The curtains open, you can hear the projectors starting to spin in the background against that dark screen, and suddenly, against the black backdrop, with a little light, came blue letters across the screen. And the letters said this, A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, it hardly goes without notice, a kind of a, a pop culture icon with Star Wars, Episode Four, released in 1977, Memorial Day weekend. And it's safe to say that at that time, with that story being told the way that it was told, I mean, think about it, after that long ago, what happened next? John Williams' incredible score, boom! Words are scrolling across the screen, spaceships, lasers are flying, all kinds of exciting stuff was happening. 
you, you probably couldn't find anybody that would want to argue that at that time George Lucas was the unquestioned, unparalleled authority for his field. And, and I, I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, I'm going to show a little bit of my age here. Forty-four and a half years later, the legacy continues. I mean, they're amping up for the book of Boba Fett here in just, just a little bit. Forty-four and a half years. So you've got an unparalleled authority, and you've got an enduring, lasting legacy coming from the sci-fi fantasy world. Well, how much more so in the real world is our God an unquestioned, unparalleled, uh, you know, I can't come up with enough adjectives to say the authority of our God. George Lucas is nothing. He's dust. But our God is an unparalleled authority and the legacy that he has, the story of the coming of his kingdom far surpasses 44 and a half years. I'm here to tell you that today. So with that in mind, what we're going to do is try to get into the world and the mind of the Hebrews briefly understand just enough information from that background so that we can ask four questions of the verses that I read in your hearing. And the background can simply be kind of wrapped up with this. Some of you were in Sunday school and heard this already, that according to Hebrews chapter 13, the book or the letter or probably even more rightly said, the sermon that we call the book of Hebrews is a letter that the writer, whoever that writer was, many think Paul, but I'm undecided yet, was writing to this group of Jewish professing Christians who had a credible confession of faith in Jesus Christ. He's writing a letter of exhortation to them. And the exhortation can be summed up in this way. You have need of endurance. Do not drift away. So let's back that up just a second. Professing, Jewish professing Christians. It seems from chapter 2, if you want to look yourself at verses, uh, starting with chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, there was a group of people at that time who actually heard firsthand from the Lord Himself the gospel of the coming of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They heard it with their own ears, and then on top of that, the Lord confirmed, the Lord attested, the Lord verified that preached word with the Holy Spirit and miracles and various signs and wonders to put His divine stamp of, of approval upon this message. This is the Word of God. And those firsthand hearers, some of which probably became the first wave of elders, in this church to which this letter, this sermon, is addressed. In Hebrews 13, the writer says, follow or imitate the faith of those who came before you. So they received the Word of God, they had this founding, but here's what happened. They had a wave of persecution come through. A wave of persecution. We won't take the time to turn there, but if we were to turn over to chapter uh, 10, we would see very clearly that there was suffering by way of reproach, suffering by way of seizure of property, which they accepted joyfully. And not only did they accept joyfully the reproaches toward them, but they also entered with sympathy 
into their brothers and sisters' plight as well. So this wave of suffering, this wave of persecution did nothing to knock them backwards. In fact, it built their faith and they grew from there. But now, fast forward, it's a new day. There's some new elders. And some within the congregation must have been kicking against those elders because they have to be told to obey their leaders in the Lord for they have accountability over you. There were things like that going on on the inside of the church. And this second wave of persecution was actually setting some of them back, actually causing some of these professing Christians with credible confessions to begin to doubt, to begin to go back to old ways of thinking, old Judaism, old Jewish mysticism, old incorporated with elements of the pagan world wrapped up in it. And then, lo and behold, here in chapters 1 and 2, you got the writer dedicating himself entirely to the theme of comparing the superiority of Christ almost to, to angels. And we covered this in Sunday school that Jesus is a superior word, as we'll hear today, compared to that which was brought through angels. Jesus has a superior name than the angels do. To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus has a superior reign to the angels because the angels, whatever authority they had, is temporary. But the risen Christ is exalted over them. And then finally, Jesus did a superior work of salvation because the angels simply served those being saved. And that's kind of where we're at with the background of this letter. Professing Christians with credible confessions that are beginning to drift in the face of persecution. They need endurance. They need to be reminded of their hope. And they need to also not drift. So let's look at our four questions. The first question is this. Says who? The first question is this, says who? It's a question of authority. I mean, maybe you as a child or you've heard kids on the playground or whatever, they start scuffing about and knocking around and pretty soon one of them says, oh yeah, well my dad said. Oh yeah, well my dad's bigger than your dad. And they kind of get into this authority banter back and forth, each one claiming that I have the more authoritative source here. I have a chain of command. I can beat you because my boss is bigger. It's kind of funny when you hear it with kids, but there, there's a truth to it. There's a truth to establishing authority in order to be heard. I want to be heard. You want to be heard. And sometimes in order to be heard, we have to appeal to an authority higher than ourselves. And that's what the writer to Hebrews does. How does it start? God. God, after He spoke long ago. So, the chain of command idea is not new, is it? Think about the centurion in Luke chapter 7. He has a slave, sick, probably going to die. He wants Jesus to heal him, but he doesn't see himself as even worthy to even talk to Jesus. So he sends his servants Say the word, the centurion says. Lord, say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. And Jesus is like, oh, 
This is great. He understands chain of command. He understands authority. That Jesus doesn't need to be in a particular place at a particular time with physical hands laid on that person's body in order to heal him because he's the creator of the universe and all he has to do is speak the word. That's how much authority he has. Well, in that uh, illustration, uh, the writer to the Hebrews is taking it, uh, as it were, even further back into God Himself. References to God the Father. He's there, Francis Schaeffer once said. He's there and He is not silent. And you notice something funny about our text. It just says, God. There's no defense. There's no proving. There's no, hey, let me assert two or three points and that evidence should lead you to believe in God. There's nothing like that at all. It's simply in your face, bold, raw. God. Says who? Says God. That's who. So, so what God are, are, are we talking about here? We're talking about the God that all of creation sings His glory. That's the God that we're talking about. Everything made sings His glory. We're talking about the God that Paul is able to walk through the streets and at Mars he'll say, you've got a, you've got a monument over there, you religious men. He said to an unknown God, let me tell you who that God is. And he doesn't prove Him. He doesn't give evidence that He exists. He simply declares, God. God is, He's there, and He is not silent. Now, I'll read from Psalm 115 if you want to turn there. God is there. And He's not silent. Looking at verses 1 through 8. Listen to the description of the living God, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, hands but cannot feel. They have feet but they cannot walk, and they cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will. How frightening here. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Our God is alive. He is. He exists. And he speaks. Think about what he said to Job. There's a little snapshot for you. Out of the whirlwind in Job chapter 40 and 41, he just, you know, with all due reverence, he lets it rip. He just tells Job exactly by way of questions how it is. Where were you? Where were you? One question after another as he talks about the mysteries of creation and its timing and all of these other fantastic things, and he just makes Job feel about that tall, which is a good place to be when you're in the presence of God. That tall. And Job says, I, I am undone, basically. 
I repent in sackcloth and ashes because of the works of this God. But then, listen, here's, here's just paragraph one. I believe the exact same verbiage is in both the Westminster and our 1689. Not only are the works of God uh, worthy of our worship and praise, but listen to the character and the being of God as I read this paragraph. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of Himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, who, can on, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, and on it goes. We only got started. We didn't finish the paragraph. That's our God. As I said earlier in the introduction, if George Lucas could have our attention, how much more so can this incredible God demand our attention. And the writer wants the attention of his listeners and he appeals that way by starting this letter. God. God. After God spoke long ago. Look over at Hebrews 6. And we'll finish out our first question here. Says who? God. That's who. Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 13 through 18. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, that is Abraham. For men... All of us swear by one greater than ourselves. That's what makes it an oath or a promise. We appeal to a higher authority of some kind, and we make that oath, and we swear. We go to someone higher than ourselves. And the oath itself is given as a confirmation and the end of every dispute. But in the same way, God, verse 17, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, He also took an oath. He interposed an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God is God. He's there. He's not silent. And when it comes to making the promises to His people... When it comes to appealing to this God as the source of authority for everything else that's about to be said, know this, brothers and sisters, there is no one, he said it with his own words, no one greater than God. So when he takes an oath, he can only swear by himself. He can only swear by his own name because there's no one greater to swear by. Does that not strengthen your faith? Unstoppable God. Undefeatable God. Incredible. And that's the source of authority that the writer appeals to with this word of exhortation. So 
That leads us to our second question. If God's the authority, says who? Says God. The next logical and practical and important question is this. What'd he say? It's God speaking. You know, you know that God that no one's greater than? That God, when he takes oaths, that takes his own name as the swear? It's that God. Well, what did he say? Well, he said this. And I don't know, the day and age that we live in, I, I, bet, I bet the printing press was a lot like this. When the printing press came out, it was a great blessing that the nations could start getting the Word of God in their own tongue and get it printed and, and get it out. But I'm sure all kinds of garbage and lots of stuff also came via the printing press. And the Internet has been a similar bane. Uh, wonderful transmission of the gospel and other media that we love, but along with it has come a lot of garbage as well. Uh, one of my favorites is some 20-something with... Uh, uh, a dry erase board and he's going to tell us theology on the internet because he's seen things and uh, you know we're supposed to listen to him as some kind of authority and uh, get our theology that way get our church that way via the internet do we really care what he has to say no no we don't but tested men proven men tried men biblically educated men who have godly characters, that's what we're interested in. We want to know what the Scriptures really say, and that's what we're turning to here in, in Hebrews 1, is that it's God that's speaking. And He spoke, He gives us a time stamp first. When did He speak? Well, first of all, He spoke long ago to the fathers. Oh, that's kind of cool. We've got a, a, a message that's rooted... And that started not in the last three decades, not in the mid-1800s, like seemingly so many other things started, but long ago to the fathers, our God, this authoritative God, spoke and He gave His people the promise of salvation. So what did He say? Well, think all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and you'll have a pretty good clue. In the midst of cursing the serpent for causing Eve and Adam to transgress, being involved with that, God says to the serpent, I will bring forth a seed that's going to crack your skull. And from that point forward, Everything that happened in this created world and everything that was said by God in the prophets and in many other ways and many portions, including even angels that we talked about in Sunday school, which will come up again here in chapter 2. But the way that God spoke through these different methods of communication was nothing more than an unfolding all along the way of that central promise back in Genesis 3.15. And so you get, you know, Enoch's a preacher of righteousness. God takes him because he walked with God. And you get all the way in here and you get Noah. Wow, preacher of righteousness. God wipes out the entire, but he saves the creation. Why? Because that seed hasn't come yet. It's not here yet. 
And going forward from there, and you get into Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on and on and on. Exodus, wow, Mount Sinai, giving of the law, giving of the covenant to the people of God, and angels are involved, and all this stuff is going on. And we're thinking, wow, years have passed, this message has matured, and then it keeps going and unfolding and going on and on. And all of it, though, is just an amplification, more and more detail, more and more light, leading up to right on the, the doorstep of the coming of that promised seed. It started long ago with the fathers to the point to where you could get and you can look at these uh, verses maybe in your own studies, but have some fun in Luke. Luke, have some fun in Luke because what you find in Luke is all that unfolding that we just talked about, you get to fever pitch in the book of Luke because it refers in chapter 2 to Simeon who was longing for the consolation of Israel, and he was highly favored because he was promised that his eyes, he would not see death until he saw the Christ. And then just a few verses down, you have, uh, I believe it's Anna. and She's in the temple praying, but she's looking for the hope and consolation and the redemption of Israel, and it references other people that are doing the same. And what you have then is that the people of God all along this way in history have never forgotten that promise. They've never forgotten, and not only have they never forgotten, it's one thing to kind of remember something. It's another thing to live in expectation of it. Let me say that again. It's one thing to remember something. It's an entirely different thing to orient your life and your affections and your emotions and therefore your behaviors and the things that you do as a lifestyle. It's quite another to have it affect you in that way. And so think about John the Baptist then. He's in prison. He knows his time is short. He's the one that baptized Jesus. He's in prison. His time is short. So he sends his guys out to the Lord. And what does he ask? What does he ask? Are you the expected one? And then the rest of it's kind of sad. Or should we look for another? Are you the expected one? Or should we look for another? Our legacy, greater than 44 and a half years, our legacy is huge. It goes all the way back to long ago to the fathers. And this God, with His authoritative word, what did He say? He said, He's coming. The expected one is coming. I'm sending him. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent. So surely, the writer appeals in question one to God as the authority. Surely the writer now has the reader's attention. But here we're learning about God doing the speaking. And surely now, surely God had their attention with the beginning of this story. But that leads us to our third question. We're going to kind of pick back up where John the Baptist left off. How many times, parents, have you been traveling and you've heard some version in the back seat of the car of 
Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And this is where the trumpets and everything come in with full blast. Double forte, is that right, Jonathan? Double forte. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Ah, the story's going to progress from John the Baptist's cliffhanging question. Are you the expected one or should we look for another? And here is God fully saying, in these last days. Now, if you're a Jewish professing Christian and you hear that language long ago, last days, I can promise you you're not just going to go, oh, okay. Because in the Jewish mind, and we're going to look at, if you want to go ahead and turn to Luke 20, in the Jewish mind, history for whatever else you can say about it, has a very tight structure. And it's very complicated. You're all going to need a seminary degree to follow this here in just a second, okay? Look at verse 34 of chapter Luke chapter 20. The Pharisees are trying to set up Jesus, cause Him to stumble, Ask him a really weird question about a wife and seven husbands and so on and so forth. And in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus just kind of just cuts right through all that nonsense. And he says in verse 34, To them, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But to those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, and the resurrection from the dead, neither are married nor given in marriage, for they cannot even die any more because they are like angels and are the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So in the mind of the professing Christians here, these Jewish professing Christians, this language is very important to them because human history and their thinking is structured by this age and the age to come. And everything associated now after the fall of Adam and Eve with this age is busted and broken and fallen and tattered and torn and messed up, but it's also temporary. There is an age yet to come, and when it comes, it's permanent. When it comes, it's righteous. When it comes, it's glorious. And when it comes, Jesus Christ is center stage. The God of Israel will rule everything. The God of Israel will have, as it were, no competition. The wicked will be burned up. And so when the writer here leverages a piece of that, he goes, we're in this age, but guess what? You're in the last days of this age. We're right on the tip of that age to come. And why do we know that? Because God has spoken in His Son. Quick comment about the Greek there. It's really cool. There is no definite article. It doesn't say His Son. It doesn't say the Son. It doesn't even say, of course, a Son. 
It's just son. God has spoken in son. It's an emphatic point that the writer is making. He spoke long ago to the fathers. He spoke in all kinds of different ways, even through angels. But in these last days, He has spoken in Son. And that is glorious. That is incredible because the Son that we're talking about is that promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent. It's Christ. Flip over to Luke 24 since we're in that neighborhood. Luke 24, a familiar passage, but perhaps in uh, as a result of our hearing God's Word today may even take on uh, deeper meaning, more impacting meaning. Verse 13 of Luke 24 Behold, two of them, that is disciples, were going that very day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. I love 16 here. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So they don't know who this guy is. He walks up, he starts talking, okay? And he said to them, what are, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? It's like almost like he's like poking at them, you know, a little bit. What things? And they said to him the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he, back to that expectant language, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, all of this, it is the third day since these things happened, but also some woman, women among us amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of them who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said. But they did not see him. And here's the, the glorious response of our Savior. He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in the Scriptures. Uh, Pastor Brian Borg, Borgman out in Nevada has an excellent series of uh, in Hebrews. Uh, Pastor John, I think you've preached in Hebrews before, haven't you, here? Uh, and then uh, Jim Sevastio in Louisville, currently, he just began last week uh, to begin to preach in Hebrews. Uh, so there's lots of good material out there, but uh, Brian Borgman uh, put it this way, referring to the road to Emmaus. Moses said I was coming! And I love that. That just stuck with me. God spoke long ago to the fathers, Moses back there going... He's coming! I said He was coming! 
Why are you so surprised? Why are you so downcast? Why do you act as if nothing's happened and nothing good has happened? said He was coming and here He is and Christ unpacks the Scriptures and shows how they all point to Himself. Matthew 28, Great Commission, 18 through 20. All authority has been given to Christ. He speaks forth those words and then what I love, turn over to Acts 2, 29. On the day of Pentecost, Beginning in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Brethren, I may confidently say that regarding David, the patriarch, Psalm 16, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. And he was neither abandoned to Hades nor his flesh suffered decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to whom we are all witnesses. Therefore, and here it is, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Christ then takes that received promise, that Holy Spirit, and pours it forth on that which you have seen and heard. Unbelievable. The answer to the question, are we there yet, is absolutely. There's a little left to go, but we're there. Why? Because Jesus was born. Because Jesus lived a sinless life. Because Jesus was baptized and did all things in accordance with God's law. Because Jesus ministered to the masses because Jesus preached the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit was poured out on Him increasingly throughout His ministry because Jesus went to the hell of Calvary and suffered and died and hung suspended between heaven and earth because Christ did all of these things. Because Christ was forsaken by His Father when He was the sin-bearing offering And because the tomb is empty, <laughs> and because He's not walking in the dusty streets right now, but rather ascended to the right hand of God and received the promise of the Spirit, all of these things say to us, are we there yet? Not quite, but yes. It's just down the road, brothers and sisters. It's just down the road. God, spoke these things to the fathers long ago and in these last days has spoken in His Son to us. And then looking back at our text, look over at chapter 2 now because our fourth question is this. Says who? God says. What did He say? He said there's a promised one coming. Are we there yet? Yes and no. But the fourth question is this. Brothers and sisters, does He have your attention? Look again at chapter, or chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason. For what reason? 
because God has spoken. You know, everything in between verse 1 and 2a that I read through and preached through already, all the rest of that in between with the angels and the comparison of Christ and the superiority of His work and so on and so forth is all critical and it's all important, but it's all in between. Because the statement is in verse 1 through 2a and the conclusion is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3a. God said it. He said it long ago to the fathers. And in these last days, He's speaking in His Son for this reason. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Why? Because He's spoken in Son. Why else? Just like there's no higher authority with God, there's no higher revelation than Jesus Christ. Now think about John chapter 1. The, the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him, right? Christ is the exegesis of the Father. He is the walking, talking, breathing explanation of God the Father. Incredible. Jesus goes around pointing to the Father. He tells the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus, as that last revelation of God... There can be no higher authority, and for that reason, we've got to pay closer attention. We must. Because if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, what happened in the covenant community of the Old Testament if you broke God's law? Well, it depends, of course. But there could be a laundry list, and we could spend a great deal of time going through it of crimes, misdemeanors, sins, transgressions, some even accidental, that would require the death penalty. The death penalty. I don't think we quite understand that in our culture, uh, uh, in particular with regard to stoning. Can you imagine one of us sinning in one of those ways against God and the rest of us having to pick up stones and take that person outside of Newburgh on the outskirts and stand there and throw rocks at them until they die. That's what we're talking about. That's unfathomable. And what the writer's saying here is, is if that word, if that law given, ordained by angels, as we saw in verses in Sunday school, if that law given, mediated by the angels, proved unalterable, watch the language here. How will we escape? He's going to argue from the lesser to the greater. Now, wait a minute, Eddie. I thought law and gospel and gospel and law and... Yes, don't want to get into that all that today, of course. Uh, and there's important distinctions to be maintained, no doubt. No doubt the difference between law and being under law and being under grace. And Paul has a whole lot to say about it in a lot of books and, and other things like that. Theological tomes have been written. The gospel's at stake in one sense if we get that distinction wrong. However, the writer here cannot be mistaken. The comparison is from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if this, how much more so now that Christ has come? Well, Eddie, I thought the gospel was easier. Well, it depends on what you're talking about. In some ways, yes. There's grace, there's love, there's forgiveness. There's sanctification. 
and all those wonderful truths that I know this room, the people I see in this room, hold dearly. But there's also an aspect of that finality of Jesus Christ, that final word of God, that if the law of Moses and Sinai, if you thought that was strong and solid, you haven't seen anything yet when, it's, when you see Jesus Christ. That also helps us understand language of Paul in other places like those who do not o obey the gospel. What, what does that mean? I thought that was law language. No, no. There, there's an aspect to the gospel of Jesus Christ because of who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus. It's not just a prophet. It's not just a wet fleece and a dry fleece. It's not just those things as inerrant and perfect and pure and wonderful as those things were. But those were shadows and types. Those were muffled voices. But now Christ has come and the call to these professing Christians who once had credible confessions of, of faith, the call is clear, do not drift away. Christ has come. The salvation is great. Do not neglect it. So how, in closing, could we neglect salvation? Well, there's a couple different ways, and the rest of the book spends time talking about it. You can drift morally as a professing Christian. I mean, think about some of the things that the writer deals with later in later chapters. Uh, practice hospitality. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. Obey your leaders. Don't forsake the assembling of yourself together. See the practical, now you understand how the practical plugs back into the beginning of the letter. All of those are examples of the exhortation to these professing Christians to not drift away. You can drift away morally, but you of course can also drift away doctrinally and a great chunk of the letter is dedicated to explaining why the new covenant as well as the, the Christ, the new Adam, is far superior to anything that came before it. So don't drift morally, don't drift doctrinally. And why is that? Well, in summary, because of this, that Christ, and I love this, Christ is better. He's better. Christ is better. He's a better sacrifice, and a better mediator, with a better covenant, based on better promises, looking for a better hope. I mean, you think about that language with Abraham in chapter 11 of looking for a city whose foundations are from God, whose architect and builder is God. All of these promises, all every aspect of the new covenant in Jesus Christ is better. It's the beginning of that age to come. We're in the last days and the age to come powers are already cascading and breaking in. Every time someone gets converted, regeneration happens. That's not just something that happens in isolation for that individual. That's something that's happening in history. The power of that age is crashing like a prequel into this age. And that's why the angels from heaven look and rejoice when people are saved. And we look as brothers and sisters of Christ and someone gets saved and we rejoice. Why? Because we're one step closer to wrapping this thing up.
one step closer. So there is no reason to drift. And going with the sobriety of our text, there's no excuse for drifting. Don't drift morally. Don't drift doctrinally. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. All these practical things. And then for anyone here that might be outside of Christ, if judgment begins with the household of God and the righteous are barely saved, as it says somewhere else, how will you expect any hope apart from Jesus Christ? And the answer is, you can't. You must come. And the good news is this, is that He will receive you. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. You are the greatest storyteller ever because Your story is true. And You are the central character of Your story, especially revealed in Your Son and empowered by Your Spirit. Thank You, Triune God, for Your work of salvation with whom we are happy, undeserving recipients. And for those outside of Christ, come powerfully, Lord, raise the dead to life. In Jesus' name. Amen.